Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast of our show, which airs Friday nights at 7 p.m. on New Mexico PBS. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at the station. I want to let you know all the ways you can get us. We talked about the broadcast Friday nights, also Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. You can also find the PBS app on your Roku or your Amazon Fire, and uh, you can find the show there as well. So lots of ways to get the content from the show into your living rooms, on your phone or tablet, whichever way you want. Uh, And we'd love to hear from you about what you're seeing and observing and experiencing. So drop us a line here with your uh, segment ideas for upcoming shows, or you can always reach out on any of our social media channels, namely Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Big news from this week was, of course, lawmakers back at work in the Roundhouse. We knew that a special session was scheduled to start on Tuesday the 5th. Uh, What surprised a lot of folks, I think, was that it also ended on the 5th. They got all the work done in a long day, but in just a single day. And, of course, the two big items on the list were uh, some slight changes in the passing of the junior bill, which uh, is all about the budget, uh, and also a relief from the soaring prices at the pump and inflation, and so tax rebates. And we know now that we uh, taxpayers are going to get about $500 or 1000 if you're married and filing jointly, and it's all based on your tax returns. But lawmakers also set up some ways for people who don't have to file taxes or actually even undocumented uh, immigrants uh, to get this money, which will help to stimulate the economy as well. So that was the work of the legislature this week, and we wanted to start things off by getting some reaction to all of that, and especially the timing of some of those rebates in an election year and if there might be a little uh, a little something behind all of that as well for all of these officials who may be up for re-election in just a few months. I want to let you know about a special line panel this week. We have got the law firm of Martinez, Martin, and Fox Young. It's just a coincidence, we try to book our line panels out a couple weeks ahead of time based on people's busy schedules. This week we ended up with an all-attorney panel, starting with Sophie Martin and Serge Martinez, who is also a law professor at UNM, and Justine Fox-Young, who was also a former state representative, so definitely got some insights about the special session. Lots to dig into here, so let's get right to host Gene Grant. Welcome to our line panelists this week. Hello to Serge Martinez. He's a professor at the University of New Mexico Law School. Next, we have attorney Sophie Martin. And it's always good to see attorney and former state representative Justine Fox Young as well. Thank you all for being here. Now, the state legislature wrapped up a quick special session just a couple days ago addressing inflation. The legislature's solution, $500 tax rebates to individual filers and 1,000 married couples filing jointly. Now, half the cash will go up by the end of June, the rest in August. Tax filers would get the money automatically uh, if you in your deposit if you do it electronically. Now, was getting through this special session smoothly and accomplishing this a success, both for Democrat leadership and a hopes for future bipartisanship? Uh, Justine, let me throw that to you first. How, what, was your, what, what was your take on our 12-hour special? Um, I mean, it certainly was smooth and almost almost a non-event news-wise. I guess if you look at it in the larger context, mm-hmm. you know, going back to the lawsuit over the $1.6, $1.7 billion in federal stimulus, um, which is kind of the way I see it, mm-hmm. which really changed the tone because, of course, you know, the governor yeah. had plans for how all that money would be spent and a group of Republican senators and a Democrat, once former Democrat, Jacob Candelaria, um, thought thought differently, I think that really set the tone and changed the parameters for what the governor's office could do and set things up for how this money would be spent down the road. And so I guess it was a bipartisan move to sort of, I mean, everybody kind of saved face. I think the governor 
was able to um, mitigate against some some of the bad press and 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 some of the um, challenges that she had coming out of the regular session mm-hmm. with allegations that you know she was her her veto of the junior bill was political etc. So I think it was all kind of muted and and everybody comes out being able to declare victory. I don't really think I have a lot of optimism for bipartisanship going forwards, part, part forward, partly because I think the governor has tried sort of in the vein of, of Bill Richardson-like maneuvers, you know, to take control um, and be very dictatorial about the way um, these monies would be spent, both capital and money in the junior bill. And that, that didn't work. She mm-hmm. had to step back mm-hmm. and, and iron out a deal. And so I, I think it's a temporary um, sort of detente and um, and everybody comes out okay, but mm-hmm. it, there's gonna be another fight down the road. I think you might be right. That's an interesting point there, uh, Justine. Uh, Sophie, let me turn to you on that. that you know, it's not all settled. <laughs> Let's put it that way, what Justine's getting to here. And so this idea of what makes a successful special session, what word can we put on this? It was 12 hours. There were no big surprises. Well, I mean, I think it could be called successful from mm-hmm. some perspectives. Sure. It could have been four days yeah. instead of one, and then sure. that would have cost a heck of a lot more money. Um, it could have been, as as Justine intimated, I mean, I mean it could have been a circumstance in which the legislature, including obviously the Democrats in the legislature, called called it themselves. And, you know, so the governor was able to save some face there and not having what would have at least appeared to be a full on rebellion from her own mm-hmm. members of her own party. Um, and so that's successful. Um, it, I, I think ultimately this will end up having been a little bit of a of a blip for the rank and file voter mm-hmm. um certainly within the political sphere there there's more to talk about here but i think is this going to have a big impact for instance on future elections probably not because i think most communities are most you know most citizens etc are going to say but yeah but the money came through mm-hmm. that's an interesting point uh, good point there too uh serge you know looking a little bit deeper at the content of what was accomplished i mean is this adequate action when it comes to inflation or you know are the better long-term solutions out there i mean 500 bucks is great a thousand's great what does it really mean at the end of the day yeah great question um let me start by just saying you know the junior bill that got passed did have some funding for at the law school that I will be um, happy to receive if the governor signs that. Um, so um, just want to disclose that and say I thought that part was a great success. Um, I think, you know, this, no, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks. I mean, for some families, it is going to be a huge, a huge deal, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. And I'm a big fan of getting money to people with as few restrictions as possible um, to allow them to spend it how they decide they need it. But in terms of tackling inflation, no, this is just a blip. This is this is just the merest waving at an effort to try to try to address it. Uh, excuse me, mm-hmm. and and so to, to some extent is a little bit of you know for for show. I think a real solution would be to to provide you know real relief to folks in the form of you know a longer a different different plan to get more income into the hands of people who need it, more money, and mm-hmm. to be able to really address the way that families and individuals are being hard hit by the current situation. Serge, speaking of families, interesting little note here uh, as well. It also included uh, monies for undocumented immigrants who are, you know, supporters say are also paying taxes and deserve mm-hmm. the relief. Uh, is that in a generally generally agreed, you know, sit- you know, yes. And, and how about for you? Is that is that okay for you to have monies oh, that way? It's absolutely great for me. First of all, it's a bit of a myth that undocumented folks don't pay ta- pay taxes, right? right? Many of them have money withheld from their wages all the time, all mm-hmm. you know, every time they work, and they don't have any way to get at that because they're not able to access that system. But you know, folks who don't file income tax returns still pay taxes in the form of. Um, sales taxes, their contributions to property taxes that are being paid. So it's a mistake to say these people are freeloading, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, folks who don't earn enough money to pay taxes, that's the way a progressive tax system is supposed to work. And those are people who need help Mm -hmm. the most. So I'm, I'm 
it first and finally, where is this money going to go, right? We put this money into the hands of New Mexicans. Guess where it goes? Into New Mexico. This is a good thing. And um, I think it would have been a huge mistake to say, to point fingers and say, we're giving out, you know, ref, a, re, a tax rebate or, you know, money for you and you and you, but not for you because you're, you know, just not right. Mm -hmm. This rising tide lifts all the boats and all the boats in New Mexico need lifting right now. Mm -hmm. Just if to, I could add one thing, please, if, if, if you don't mind. One yeah. thing that I wanted to that really struck me, though, about the um, what Serge was just talking about with um, individuals who are undocumented who could access funds is that they are required to register for it, and that makes sense on some sure. level. Like how do yeah. how do how does the state get the money to you if it doesn't know who you are and where you are? And at the same time, I do feel some concern that individuals. Um, who are living off the books, so to speak, um, may not wish to participate in that registration program, may not wish to notify the state who they are and where they are. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue here. It really is. And, and, and when there's not, not a lot of money to go around, people make interesting choices. Uh, Justine, I'm, I'm, I, again, I don't want to put you in the spot, you know, always having to explain the Republican side of things, but I'm interested in this. Um, there was only re one Republican on the uh, Senate side that was opposed to any of this, and not many on the House side either. And I hear your point a little bit earlier about it doesn't really bode anything for bipartisanship. Was this just a fact, I just need to get my money that I promised my constituents and get out of town? Is that, was that basically what we're seeing here from Republicans as well? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for the caucus or for any sure. individual members or for the, I don't even know what the Republican Party is anymore. Um, Fair enough. You know, to, to be <laughs> frank, but, mm -hmm. but I, I don't think there was anything terribly controversial, right. you know, for the same reasons that Surge, um, you know, supports for many of the same reasons that Surge supports seeing seeing the money go out to the public, I think I don't think that is a a partisan issue at all. I mean, even people who believe in limited government think that that the funds are better in the hands of individuals to make choices about what they what they need the money for. And mm -hmm. and and I, for one, am glad that that pot of money wasn't spent on some large recurring program mm -hmm. that that is going to require you know future funds from tax coffers. So I don't think it was terribly controversial. I do think people thought they would score political points by handing out stimulus money. And of course, virtually every special session, you know, everything is is kind of greased beforehand. So I, I don't Justine, think- Justine, what, what, what do you make about the idea of letting these payments out on the timing? I mean, right around the primary in June 7th and then the other checks coming around the general in, in November. Is, is that a political move? I mean, why not just give all the money Awkward. at once? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> Serge, what do you think? Too political for words or timing is just right? What do you think? <laughs> I mean, it's clearly too political. There's no such thing anymore as too political for words. But right. I mean, this is not subtle. And, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that in, in some cases. And this is one of them. Sophie, there's been some talk out there that we could be, since we have so much money and potentially a lot of money coming in over the years, we could end up looking like Alaska at some point where people end up getting checks <laughs> annually from all this money. Could you ever imagine a scenario like that in New Mexico? I mean, I can imagine it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but those, you know, those of us who have been here for some time know that our fortunes rise and fall. We've had some awfully lean years. Yep. And I think it would probably take a little while um, before this this legislature was prepared to do to entertain something like that, mm -hmm. um, woohoo, money for everyone! Yeah, Alaska's program is really interesting, but right. um, but uh, I don't I I don't think we're there yet. We do still have things we need to fund in this state, mm -hmm. and that we need government to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, so I imagine that that would be part of the debate there too. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Well, thank you all for that discussion. We'll check back in with you in less than 10 minutes to talk about the successes and the issues that came in the first week of legal recreational cannabis sales in New Mexico. But first, an expert perspective on the plan to send $500 to each New Mexican. To stay on these rebates for a minute now, again, we know that this is in large part to fend off Inflation, which is hitting us all pretty hard, whether at the gas pump or at the grocery store, lots of different places, and also fueled by the ongoing war uh, in Ukraine, spurred by Russia, uh, which is definitely having an impact on those prices at the pump. 
And uh, so we had a lot of questions about these rebates, how much good they will really do with those ongoing forces that are out of our control when we might get some relief from inflation, all of those kinds of things. Nobody better to go to in New Mexico than Dr. James Peach. He's now a professor emeritus of economics at New Mexico State University. And we caught up with him uh, just yesterday with host Gene Grant to get some answers. So let's listen to that conversation. I'm pleased to be welcoming Dr. James Peach, Professor Emeritus from New Mexico State University, where he taught economics and international business for a number of years before retiring. Congratulations on your retirement, first of all. Got a couple of questions for you, Dr. Peach. I'm really interested. I want to ask you about the outcome of the special session uh, just wrapped up this week, the decision by the legislature to send either $500 or $1,000 to singles or couples out there. Um, filing jointly, the goal in the session was to ease the burden of rising consumer costs. Does this do that in your view? Uh, it, it could help. There's a far better thing to do this than to have additional tax cuts. We will need the tax revenue at some point, given the volatility in oil prices. Mm-hmm. Would, is there... Is that number acceptable to you? Did you have a, a number in your own mind that you thought, mm, well, maybe this might help? Is $500 appreciably good in your in your view? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, that'll be a big help for a lot of people, especially at the low end of the income distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, $500 is not gonna change my lifestyle or probably yours either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people, it'll make a big difference. Mm-hmm. I, in comparison, uh, the move is along the same lines, of course, as the federal stimulus checks we uh, received uh, last year, last two years. But those didn't stop uh, the inflation we're seeing now. Are there any precautions we can take now to help prevent a future spike in inflation? Mm-hmm. There's very little that can be done at the state level, almost nothing. Uh, at the federal level, the uh, measures that are being taken by the Federal Reserve, raising interest rates and reducing the balance sheet of, of the bank, uh, it may help a little bit. A lot of the inflation mm-hmm. has to do with things that are uh, not uh, in the typical wick of uh, monetary policy. And that includes uh, oil prices, energy prices, which have been affected dramatically by the war, uh, Russia's war on the Ukraine, Mm -hmm. and uh, automobile prices, which uh, a lot of that is due to a supply constraint on chips. And food prices are, uh, of course, going up. And a lot of that has very little to do with uh, with policies that have been enacted. Mm-hmm. What could bring down inflation in your view at this point? Uh, like you mentioned, uh, there's a lot of factors out there causing this kind of pressure. Is there any one thing we can look to to, to ease inflation at this point? Um, at, a good part of the inflation in the CPI is due to two things. It's due to energy and it's due to the increase in automobile prices. Mm-hmm. As the chip shortage eases a little bit, and there are signs that that's going to ease, uh, automobile prices should at least quit rising as rapidly, and that'll have an effect on used car prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, energy markets are... Uh, always volatile uh that's the whole history of the oil industry is volatility in crude oil prices and there's very little that we can do uh at the national level uh, the administration has uh, announced the 180 million barrels a million barrels a day uh for 180 days a release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, mm-hmm. that, that's not going to affect uh, international prices for 
crude oil very much. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a little bit of price drop, though. What do you attribute that to? You know, uh, oil markets are so touchy these days that even slight changes in crude oil stocks, slight changes in, in rumors. Um, you know, West Texas Intermediate hit briefly $130 a barrel one day about three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Hey, we've got $95 oil. Uh, it's uh, a remarkable thing how those markets can it can change on rumor, on sometimes on fact, mm-hmm. but uh, what we can expect in the future is continued volatility. Dr. Peach, when you, can we see some relief here in your view? This is my last question. When, you know, on inflation, prices, everything else, what's out there that's going to give us some relief and when? Well, I, I think some of the pressures that we've been talking about, energy and automobiles, some of that will go away probably by the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. And I, I would think certainly by the end of the year, we should, we should have, uh, be well on our way to returning to some sort of uh, better outlook on inflation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. James Peach, Professor Emeritus, New Mexico State University, thank you very much for our quick time today. Hopefully we can stop in with you and discuss this uh, as the summer and the end of year uh, gets a little bit closer and see where we are. But we appreciate your time today. Lots of policy issues back and forth in the headlines this week. Also a busy week for the Albuquerque City Council. On Monday, they uh, passed several things, one of which is something we've been following here on the show through our environmental series, Our Land, for a while now. And that was a potential override of Mayor Tim Keller's veto of the repeal of the plastic bag ban that was approved by a different city council, but approved and actually implemented before the pandemic. And then it was scrapped for a while during the pandemic, uh, reinstituted just a little bit ago, a few months ago, I believe it was, but now is no more after The city council did have enough votes to override that veto. Uh, At the same time, we know that some of the implications of those plastic bags are still being felt on a daily basis here in Albuquerque and across the state, especially when it's as windy as it is right now. In springtime in New Mexico, you see those plastic bags flapping around in the trees or on the tumbleweeds or up against fences. And one place you might not be thinking about is the stormwater drains and ditches uh, around Albuquerque. And our our land correspondent, Laura Pascas, caught up with a Bernalillo County official to talk about the reality of all of those plastic bags that can get caught in some of these drains and really pile up and what the impacts and health impacts, not just on humans, but animals. And this could be something that could also hit us in the pocketbooks in terms of our agreements around water quality uh, and the impact, again, that these plastic bags have on all of that. So who knows where the plastic bag uh, ban uh, goes from here, if there'll be another push for that down the road. We know Santa Fe still has it. In fact, Bernalillo County still has one. Albuquerque, no more, though. But here we go with our land correspondent, Laura Pascas. Good morning, everyone. I am here with Kali Bronson. She's the Bernalillo County Stormwater Program Compliance Manager. Thanks for being here with me this morning. Thanks for having me, Laura. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So just to update everyone, there was news late last night, um, thanks to Jessica Dyer at the Albuquerque Journal for staying up late and covering the city council meeting. Um, So last night, the Albuquerque City Council overrode Mayor Tim Keller's veto of the council's earlier overturn of the Clean and Green Retail Ordinance. So what that means in a nutshell is that the city's plastic bag ban is, is dead now um you know which is kind of weird seeing as how so many other cities across the united states have been moving forward with their bans 
Um, but you know, it also might make a little bit of sense as the fossil fuel industry is really pushing hard to find new uses for their products. So we're going to have some, we're going to have some coverage coming up in the coming weeks and months, looking more specifically at plastics and the fossil fuel industry. But this morning, we're here to talk about plastics and plastic bags that end up in our city's waterways. So Kali, thanks for being here. Can you talk a little bit first about your job and your department and what you do? Yeah, um, thanks, Laura. Yeah, I work for Bernalillo County. I am, as you said, the Stormwater Program Compliance Manager. And my job essentially is to oversee uh, compliance with an uh, Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, permit that protects stormwater quality. So it's through the NPDES program or non-point discharge elimination system, all those good big acronyms. Um, and we have a bit of a unique permit here in the middle Rio Grande. It's watershed based rather than by jurisdictional boundaries. And it encourages cooperation between the entities that are covered under this permit. So there are lots of areas where Bernalillo County works with other entities like the city of Albuquerque, AMACA, the Flood Control Authority, um, and several others. And we work together and cooperate to, um, to meet permit, to meet these permit um, requirements. Uh, one of the requirements I think that, that, that applies specifically to this conversation we're having today um, is what they call floatables uh, requirement. Floatables are, you know, trash. So it's your plastic bags, your cups, your food waste materials um, and other debris. And the permit, wants that they essentially first want us to have a control program that controls sources of it so source control keeping it out of the stormwater first is obviously the easiest way to keep it clean um, and then secondarily uh, structural controls to address what does get into the stormwater um, and so that that um, particular permit requirement i think is applicable to this um, to this discussion and this issue so that photo behind you, can you yes. describe what we're seeing there? So that is a stormwater outfall. Um, I believe this one belongs to the city of Albuquerque, um, but the way the stormwater systems work in, in our area, like in the greater Albuquerque metro area, we have a lot of interconnected there, places that are unincorporated Bernalillo County, uh, places that are city of Albuquerque, places that have NAFCA, the flood control authority, you know, belongs to them and they all interlink and so that we go in you know it goes Bernalillo County goes into the city then goes into Amapka then goes into the county and goes back out right so so even though this particular it is it's very complicated the systems are all tangled up together so this particular um, outfall belongs to the city but it it likely has inputs from lots of different entities that are covered under this permit um, and so this outfall goes directly to the Rio Grande. And what you are seeing is there's, there's a bit of a screen on there and it's caught some of the plastic bags. And there are, and I'll duck out here, you can, there, there are a lot of plastic bags hanging on there and plastic bags um, tend to be one of the biggest um, contributors to plastics pollutions along with cups, polystyrene, um, you know, packaging, all sorts of plastics that we have in our, in our, uh, stream of waste. So a couple of weeks ago, the Water Protection Advisory Board wrote to Albuquerque officials urging the city council to um, reconsider its earlier repeal of the ordinance. And in that letter, they wrote that the city collects annually or annually the city collects and disposes of about five semi truckloads of plastic bags from drains and they wrote that that doesn't include the plastic bags that are collected from drains by by other entities is that an accurate picture of of the scale of this waste yeah so we um all of the entities that have stormwater systems uh we we clean them out we have to collect this waste and we all track it as part of uh regulations under this permit and and that's pretty accurate you know, a large portion of the material that's collected is sediment and other things like that. But, you know, plastics are, are a big part of that debris, the trash portion of it. Um, so plastic bags, cups, water bottles, um, packaging, all of that is, is there. And then it breaks down. And so even though a large portion of that is sediments, you may have a lot of uh, what we call microplastics in there because those plastics break down over time. 
um, when they're exposed to sunlight and, and become smaller pieces. Um, so that, that becomes part of that um, waste stream as well that gets into, that gets into our rivers. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more? You know, we see, you know, the, like the visual behind you, it's very obvious. Um, we see plastic bags stuck to cactus and fences and all over the place. But what about those, what about those bits that we can't necessarily see? What's the problem with those? So those plastics, so when plastics start breaking down, they also, they leak out toxins in there. There are various types of toxins. It depends on the type of plastic. There are lots of different chemicals, um, but we know that a lot of them uh, really impact human and um, wildlife health. And they're linked to, um, you know, cancers and endocrine disruptors and hormonal disruptions. And, all, you know, there's all sorts of things that we've, leaked, we've linked these toxins and plastics to. And so that gets into the water. Um, it gets in when it becomes smaller pieces, animals can easily eat it. Um, the real big problem with that, obviously there's some toxins in there, but also those, their bodies, we can't digest plastic. So what ends up happening is those plastics just get lodged in their digestive system um, and they're stuck in there. Yeah. And so if you've got a lot of microplastics and it's, you know, floating around in the water, it becomes part of, you know, what they eat, you know, unintentionally. And that can be a really big problem too. And then again, those microplastics can, it takes, you know, 10 to, I don't know, um, a hundred years to decompose, but it never, plastics don't completely decompose ever. So you constantly have this, essentially this source um, within our waters when it gets in there. So I'm, I feel like our, our city's plastic bag ban was complicated because it was passed in 2019, but then it was kind of pulled back because of the, the pandemic and just so much uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic in particular. But do you have a sense of how something like the city's plastic bag ban can reduce this waste stream that you're having to deal with? Yeah, I think you can look. There are studies that have been done in other cities that have had plastic bag bans. And so, for example, the city of San Jose saw a reduction in plastic bag um, litter from what had been 12% of, of their floatables or their, their trash debris um, in 2010 to 4% in 2012, just from having that plastic bag ban. Um, and that's, that's considerable. Um, and we're seeing that in other, we're seeing that in other um, places. Bay Area has done a lot of studies. You can look at those. But a lot of the places that, that are, um, that have these bans, we do see a, 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 you know, significant reduction in plastic waste. Um, and plastic bags are transported more easily as well, because not just, they, they can go through the wind. Like you said, we see them in trees, we see them stuck on cactus. So they get blown around, they get into our waterways, even if they don't get trapped in our stormwater system. Um, they, they move, they move a lot. So um, in that letter that I mentioned earlier, the, the, um, the advisory board also, you know, mentioned that because of this, this waste, it could prevent the city from complying with federal clean water standards. You know, what happens if Albuquerque or, you know, the state or what happens if we don't comply with those federal clean water standards? Right, so if we don't comply, if the EPA um, assesses our efforts in complying with this permit and they find them to um, not be sufficient or adequate, uh, they can fine us and those fines can be, um, yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it can be um, tens of thousands of dollars a day until, um, until the entity comes into compliance. So there's significant fines um, that can really impact uh, it can really impact um, financial viability of these programs. So rather than spending money on fines, we could be spending money on solutions. Yeah, it's just been so interesting to watch this whole debate play out over plastic bags. Um, in some, and uh, with, with respect to some of the, the anti-plastic bag ban people, they've framed it in terms of, you know, consumers should have the freedom to choose that this is an issue of personal freedoms. Um, but I can't help but feel like um, there's all these, you know, forgive the, the play on words here, but all these downstream impacts that, that are really um, pretty remarkable and potentially expensive. Um, do you have any sense of 
without a plastic bag ban in place, what some of the other solutions might be, because people can make their individual choices, but clearly there needs to be um, there needs to be government incentives or government action and system-wide change. I know that isn't your, your job, um, but I'm curious, you know, what you think can be done. Yeah, in, I think that's interesting. So in terms of, you know, that perspective, you know, going back again to my job and making sure that the county is in compliance with this stormwater, this permit to protect stormwater quality, um, as I said, it's a watershed based permit. So we're looking at rather than jurisdictional lines every time we go in and out of the city or the other flood control authorities, um, we're approaching this as a bigger system, right? We're looking at it systematically rather than cut into pieces. Um, and so, and I think that the same thing can be said for this, you know, the plastic bag ban, the county has one. So within incorporated county areas, we, we do have a plastic bag ban. Um, it's really helpful to have that, um, you know, watershed wide so that we can reduce it. There are other, you know, issues that, that we do have to look at. It's obviously not going to solve everything to have a plastic bag ban. Um, there are lots of other waste streams, like I said, water bottles and, you know, polystyrene and, you know, plastic containers like all, you know, everything we get, we buy in the stores these days are covered in plastic. So those plastics are in lots of other things. Um, and then, you know, we've got the homeless population, which when you get encampments can really impact, you know, the, these people are trying to figure out how to get by, but they end up leaving a lot of detritus, a lot of debris um, that gets in the stormwater system. So, you know, larger systematic um, solutions need to be looked at as well. Um, impact, you know, impacting homelessness, trying to reduce that, trying to help that, that will in turn impact stormwater quality um, because that does have um, an outsized impact, I think, on it. Um, and then, you know, that a lot of these entities, as I said, the, the floatables control program, um, they want us to first focus on source controls, but they also look at structural control. So there are things that we can put into place. So example, these bars do catch those plastic bags, at least some of them, that certainly doesn't catch all of them. And we have um, what, what are called trash racks in some of our uh, storm sewer systems that help collect those materials, but then that costs us, you know, you have to have crews that go out and maintain it. And if you're getting a lot of it, it takes more care, more maintenance, more work. Um, so people may choose to use or not use plastic bags, but the cost of all of this trash, it's, it really comes out um, in what we pay, you know, our governmental agencies in those taxes to keep this clean and to, to keep in, in um, compliance with these permits for the clean water. It can seem, the whole issue of plastic bags can seem so straightforward, like just a, a choice you make at the grocery store, but thank you so much for helping us understand the, the bigger implications and kind of, um, you know, the, the system-wide um, impacts and consequences. It's really helpful. It's helpful for me to think, you know, kind of more watershed-based. And even like you mentioned about homeless encampments, um, that is something that I've heard counselor bring up that, um, you know, people who are unhoused need the convenience of plastic bags. And while that might be true, I think it, you're, you know, what you said is a reminder that we have these sort of bigger issues that we need to address um, and to hopefully, you know, make things better moving forward for, for the environment and for people as well. So um, Kali, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, I really appreciate this conversation and um, the whole issue of stormwater is so interesting and hopefully we can talk again about um, some of the some of the other issues involving stormwater in the city as well. Thank you, Laura. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Time to jump back over to the line opinion panel now. We are officially one week into legal recreational cannabis sales in New Mexico. We talked about this a lot last week, and this is a great time to remind you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to our companion podcast, Growing Forward, 
all about the cannabis industry in New Mexico. This is a joint partnership with KUNM Radio and New Mexico Political Report. Our hosts are Andy Lyman of Political Report and Megan Kamrick, correspondent on this show at Times and news director over at KUNM. They were out and about on opening day just one week ago talking to all sorts of folks about the kickoff of recreational sales. And we should be getting some new numbers soon, but we know the opening weekend was a biggie. But we don't know yet how that will translate into those valuable tax dollars that will come into the state for the rest of the current year. But the line opinion panelists definitely have some thoughts, so let's dive right into that. Here we are again with host Gene Grant and our line opinion panel. 318 million dollars, that's the number Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham expects recreational cannabis sales to reach by the end of the year after what she calls a successful opening weekend for legalization. If that estimate pans out, the state would receive millions in tax revenue, sending even more cash to local municipalities where shops are up and running. Now, let's welcome our line panel back for a look back at opening week. $5.2 million on opening weekend, almost three and a half of that recreational use. Predictions of more than $300 million in the first nine months is the governor, Sophie, the right to be celebrating these numbers. Is she on the right track here? I, you know, I can't predict exactly how sales will work. And my experience outside of the cannabis industry is, is that you often will get a bump on your opening weekend. Right. Woo-hoo. So um, it's, you know, not, <laughs> not able to do the full projections myself, but it does seem like it was a promising start. Um, and I think it has been interesting. A lot of coverage about this has really focused on the border with Texas, which mm-hmm. is the largest um, the largest state that does not allow cannabis, you know, doesn't have legalization within the state. And here we have that that nice border. I'm, I'm sure folks in Clovis are happy right now um, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. those sales. Serge, interesting. The word transparency comes up here with all this money coming in. Do we know? Do we have enough transparency on how this money is either being received, how it's going to be spent? What's what's your gut telling you at this point? <laughs> um, transparency is not something that comes to mind uh, with <laughs> this, right? Um, I mean, we do know that it's bringing in a lot of money and probably raising folks' expectations for for what we can expect. But uh, I've not been clear on how it's being accounted for and how it's being distributed or what's going to happen. There's just, you know, like Sophie said, woohoo, there's a lot of money. And, and you know, I'm not going to complain about that. But I do think there's, you know, this is barely a year since they passed, not even a year, right, since this, since this was passed. And mm-hmm. we're, we're very, very much at the beginning stages of seeing how this plays out. I'm optimistic, but... Um, you know, I do think it's a little bit too soon to say, yes, this is this has solved lots of problems and we'll all be able to be happy and see how this goes out. I mean, just in terms of, you know, the licensing and seeing how it's been micro businesses, micro growers rather have been, you know, making noise about being left out and having unfair or unreasonable um, obstacles raised, right? I mean, we're mm-hmm. so very much in the infancy stage of this and so much needs to be worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that like, declaring that we're, yes, this is going to change. It's like a baseball team winning its first two games and saying, we're on pace to go 162 and, and 0 or whatever. Right. The, <laughs> Thank <Right>? you, Serge. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Justine, interestingly, uh, I'm, I appreciate that Serge just brought up microproducers because one of the lingering concerns for disadvantage facing, you know, these businesses aren't allowed to have more than 200 full-grown plants at a time. They aren't allowed to buy wholesale product to sell back to the public. What, what does this mean for smaller businesses trying to compete with big money operations that we know are, are putting the clamp down on right now? Well, I think that remains to be seen. First, mm-hmm. though, on the big picture, I am ready to declare victory. I mean, I think here the Democrats have hit on a renewable green resource. And with estimates like this, I think we found a way to pay for all the free college that um that you know nobody knew how to plug that hole and then hey all these stoner college kids are going to have money jingling around in their pockets and they can buy more weed and i think the governor has unwittingly hit upon a self-sustaining economic model with a renewable resource i don't know um obviously 
a lot remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, Gene, you hit on, as far as um, the mechanics are concerned, exactly what the real issue will be um, as, as new producers get in the game and we see what will really work. And this has always been the issue with the marijuana program, whether it's medical marijuana or now recreational, mm-hmm. how, did, how does the government engineer all this and, and still let the market work? You know, I, I would say, given that we've been working on this for 23 years, Right. You know, since Gary Johnson came out and, Very good point. And, um, and, and a whole bunch of legislators at that time were, were ready to go forward with it. We seem to be struggling with the same problems over and over again. And so I guess I'm not that optimistic that we are going to see a really robust market in place. Right. Um, and, and see the kinds of returns that that are predicted. But I hope I hope that that the market is allowed to to operate. You know, I, I appreciate that point. And Sophie, let me continue on. The market also includes others <laughs> who are not quite so official, if you get my drift here. And I'm just, I'm, I'm interested to see as the weeks go by, if our market of New Mexico gets flooded with cheap, you know, cannabis, illegal cannabis, not through our state stores. And, and what that does to pricing and demand and all that kind of a thing. It's going to be very interesting as, as, as the weeks go on here to see what's, what's going to happen. But let me ask you this. With so much money headed to the state, so if, was enough thought given to creating that same opportunity for Native tribes here? Are they, are, are, in your sense, are they getting in on the largesse at this point like everybody else? Well, I mean, I think it's important to note that the, that the tribal properties um, fall under federal marijuana law. Yep. And so there is a real distinction there between what's possible on non-tribal lands and what's possible on tribal lands. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, th- I think that is a real, um, it's, it's something that folks need to keep in mind. It's a, it's a real issue. The, you know, the other thing I did want to bring up, and I, and I think this will have impact both, uh, it'll have impact on non-tribal, but also on tribal, on tribal lands, um, uh, is the decriminalization um, element and the expungements that we're we're going to be seeing mm-hmm. of past criminal records relating to to marijuana possession, and so mm-hmm. I mean I think that that's going to be a big relief as that rolls out and as that um, as those expungements happen. Mm-hmm. I, and I should say less of an issue because of, of tribal law issues, but but um, certainly within the state. Um, those expungements are going to be huge. Yep. Hey, Serge, we got to get in law enforcement uh, in this discussion. There's no doubt, you know, this concern out there, you're going to have people behind the wheel, you know, even more addled, if I can use a word here, than before. And the other idea, of course, is that, you know, officers are going through training, you know, what to look for. How, you know, they need to be a step ahead of this, don't they? You know, this, this just can't happen in isolation without law enforcement being ready uh, to do their thing. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm a little bit unsure about that because mm-hmm. it is not like cannabis was not here in New Mexico before, mm-hmm. right? And I wonder how much overlap there is between the group of people who were cautious enough to wait for it to be legal, but then are cool with driving while you know after being under uh, while using cannabis, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I mean, but that said, you know, a recent fairly recent study I saw out of Colorado said that like 40% of the recreational users they asked thought cannabis didn't impair their driving at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so it is, it is a problem. I don't want to, you know, poo-poo it, right. That the more available it is, the more socially acceptable it is, the more people have experience with it that, and start to say, Oh, this isn't an issue. Can, can and, I throw in that, you know, legal marijuana is much stronger than a lot of street weed. I mean, if, if you can buy two ounces at a time, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there who sit there and just try to pound weed and you've got a problem suddenly. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it is, I mean, you know, the the person who figures out a really, you know, solid, reliable test for this is is going to um, be in a good place. But I do think it's it is important to be aware and increase, you know, education about mm-hmm. you actually don't drive better when you're high and that, you know, and that you can it's not just about alcohol, but also making sure that, you know, use is not impairment, just like with alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a difference between going to the bar and having a glass of wine then and pounding shots, right? And mm-hmm. the same with, you know, with cannabis. And I don't 
I don't envy this task, but it's important to try to make sure we get it right and focus on, you know, not just saying anybody who uses is therefore, you know, you know, in the sights of law enforcement and whatnot, right. because it's decriminalized for a reason. That's right. Hey, Justine, um, we also had a situation more than a dozen students needing medical attention after apparently accidentally eating some edibles. I mean, you know, is it going to be have to uh, education for parents? What has to happen here to keep something like that from happening again? I mean, I hate to I hate to be neg you know, be negative about it. I think we've done all the education you can imagine on alcohol use and that hasn't that hasn't done a whole lot with our alcohol problem in the state. I just think all the problems that you point to, these are issues that come out of governmental regulation. We have a partial decriminalization. We have the government interfering. I mean, you talked about street weed. Street weed didn't do this to people. And and now we're in a, in a situation where we do have really a very strong substance and it's it's going to be highly available. I think it's got to settle out. I mean, you've got, it's a complicated problem where you've got the black market, you've got this new legal market and everybody's trying to work it out and you know things like this are going to happen and and in a year or so i think we'll be sitting here mm -hmm. realizing that that it's calmed down and it's not so new and people will figure out how to manage it mm -hmm. justine we're, we're it's taxed pretty heavily and there's more tax coming on it as the years go by is there a point of no return on price when it comes to legal uh, cannabis where it's just too much in the black market's just ready <laughs> waiting Absolutely, there is. You yeah. know, it, it, you're going to have diminishing returns. I don't know exactly where that point is. I'm sure that studies out of Colorado have revealed that, and and out of Washington and Oregon, um, and and also as we see the proliferation around the country, where it's you know that's going to change local markets, where it just becomes so widely available. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, it's it's going to diminish, and so that's why I don't put a lot of stock in these estimates. Yeah, interesting point there. Not everyone's going to go out and spend 200 bucks every you know two weeks on on this stuff. We're going to be keeping a close eye on all the developments surrounding legalization. Also, be sure to listen to the New Mexico PBS podcast, Growing Forward made in collaboration with New Mexico Political Report and KUNM. Co-hosts Megan Kemrick and Andy Lyman explore the potentially wide-ranging impacts of legalization, including a criminal expungent recently mentioned, water rights, and the carbon footprint of indoor grow operations. You can find Growing Forward anywhere you get your podcasts. Now we'll be back with the line with one final discussion on evictions in just about 10 minutes. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, but we always appreciate you tuning in, taking us with you on the road, in the car, on your bike, to the gym. Uh, we just uh, really appreciate the opportunity to bring this content to you wherever you are, and we also appreciate your feedback on what you want to hear us tackle next. So again, mentioned it earlier, but you can find us lots of different places. You can actually drop us a line here on the podcast or Reach out on any of our social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Let us know what you're seeing and experiencing and who we should be talking to. Until next time, we hope you have a terrific weekend. Stay out of the wind. Enjoy the warmer weather. Beware of fire danger. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy.